Good morning. Welcome to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. And in our Ancestry.Church series, we're going through the book of Genesis. And this story that we've landed on today can be kind of disturbing. It's kind of been a trend, hasn't it? <laughs> but when you get into this story, it's amazing to see how God uses it as a prelude to the grace that he brings the world through Jesus. That thousands of years before Jesus was born, the foundations are already laid for what Jesus will come to do for us. The cost that God would not ask from us, he provides to restore us to himself. And the story we're going to be looking into today is in Genesis 22. So if you'd like to use one of the Bibles here, in a few moments the ushers will be coming up and down the aisles to offer you a Bible if you'd like to use one. Or you can use your Bible app on your phone also if you would like. In the Quest Bible, the uh, passage from Genesis 22 is found on page 30. And right at the top of chapter 22, we're told what's happening in this story. That Abraham is being tested. So let me start by asking you, what is the purpose of a test? When you're in school, what's a test for? Pop quiz right now, multiple choice. Is your heart rate going up? Here's the question. When a teacher gives the class a test, is the teacher intending A, to make the class miserable and afraid, B, to stump the class so that everybody fails, or C, to help the class realize what they actually know or what they still need to learn? Now, if you answered A or B, your teacher probably had some issues. I'm sorry about that. But if you had a good teacher, a test is given when the teacher wants to know what you've learned and wants you to know that you know it. Or if you don't know it yet, you learn what you still need to know through a test. So as we go through this text today, I want you to ask yourself, what is the purpose of this test? What's God showing Abraham about what he already knows and about what he has yet to learn? And what does it say to us today? So now the quiz is over. Please pull out your textbook as we look at Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2. It says, Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, I can't even imagine the horror, shock, disbelief of hearing that. Abram had been waiting for this boy Isaac for 25 years. He and Sarah had gotten off course for a while first, trying to get their own promised child using Sarai's servant Hagar. But then angels in the form of traveling guests had come to tell them to expect Isaac's birth within a year. And within a year, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah 90, Isaac was born. So there's absolutely no doubt this is the one God was talking about. This is the child God promised to make into a great nation for Abraham. But now God was saying, kill him. Sacrifice him to me. That just doesn't sound like God. It's completely out of character. Why would God ask this? I can imagine that Abram is just reeling. But what I find most interesting about this moment is what Abraham doesn't do about it. Because remember last week? Last week we heard God tell Abraham 
that he was about to let the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah be destroyed in response to the outcry that had reached his ears from those who had been wronged by the people of those cities. And Abraham boldly asked God if God would spare the city if he could find 50 righteous people in it. And then he barters with God. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Because from what he knows about God, blanket judgment doesn't fit with God's character. So much so that in Genesis 19.25, Abraham calls God on it. He says to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now that's bold, right? Challenging God on his morals. He's asking, testing God to see if God will be faithful to his own standards. He's skating right on the razor's edge of blasphemy, right? Abraham challenged God over the fate of strangers. But when God asks him to sacrifice his own innocent child, the child of God's promise, Abraham doesn't say a word. Not a single word of protest. Don't you find that a little strange? I do. Clearly, something has changed in Abraham. And the story itself gives us some clues as to what that might be. So let's look back at Genesis 22, verses 4 through 8. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So was that a lie or a prayer? See, in the past, Abraham had doubted God's faithfulness, God's power, God's integrity, and God had always proven worthy of his trust in the end. I think this time, Abraham doesn't argue with God because he's just plain banking on God's character. He's putting all of his trust and his belief that God is not only God, but that God is faithful to his promises and that Isaac is part of this promise. So when he goes off with Isaac alone, he tells the servant, we will come back to you, not I, we. And he tells Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb. Because I think Abraham is trusting God for an answer he can't see yet. Because that's what he's seen God do so far, right? And it turns out that's exactly what happens. But God sure saves, leaves the saving down to the very last second. It is a test of faith, after all. But before Abraham can sacrifice his son, the Lord stops his hand. Genesis twenty-two twelve, he says, Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its, thorn, its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
So if this was a test, what was it teaching? I'm proposing three things. Number one, that God can be trusted to be faithful to his promise and to his character. And second, this story sets the precedent for God's people. I want this kind of heart-level obedience, but I'm not honored by murder. Our God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And third, it sets the stage for the ransom that God will ultimately provide for all of us. Ultimately, the sacrifice God would not let Abraham give, God himself pays for us in Jesus. And while we might understand that, the story is still horrifying, isn't it? Okay, God, sure, it's nice to reinforce trust and all, but it, did it have to be that horrible? His own son, did it have to be that severe? Well, I think history shows us it did. Because Abraham would have many descendants, and those descendants would live among cultures that worshipped other gods. And when those cultures were facing a threat, they felt it meant that Molech and Baal were not on their side, and the way to get the help of the gods was to sacrifice their children. This was a common practice in the ancient world. And you might not think that anyone would be tempted to imitate that, that God wouldn't have to make the point, hey, my people, I don't want that. You think that silence on that point would be enough for them not to do it. But after the exodus, Moses makes a point of this in Deuteronomy 12, 31. He says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all that I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. And later in history, when God's people were sent into exile, we see this was part of the reason God sent them away. In Jeremiah 19.4, it says, For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. God is so disgusted with this, he gives his people a time out all the way to Babylon to think about what they did and eventually remember what God actually asks of them. So back to our story for today. Why did God give this severe test? I think it was to show his people that even if God himself were to ask for this kind of sacrifice from us, even then he wouldn't receive it as worship. God is setting himself apart from the gods of those other nations when he himself replaces the sacrifice of Isaac with a ram to sacrifice instead. Honor me with a heart like this, willing to be sacrificially obedient, but I don't want death on your hands. I'm honored by mercy, not sacrifice. God is using this test to reinforce for his people who he is. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what would cause people to even consider something like this. But the tool Satan uses most in the world is fear, followed closely by guilt and shame. And when you live in fear long enough, people start to bargain. They start to think, if I make the most terrible sacrifice possible, then God will owe me, and he'll have to give me victory or safety. That's how they think. But God doesn't work that way. 
He doesn't think that way. God is not motivated by your self-inflicted pain. He doesn't want that. What he wants is relationship with you. He wants your life, not your death. And it's strange how often people fall into that way of thinking about God. When King David committed adultery and murder and was in the doghouse with God, he wrote Psalm 51 as a confession. And in verses 16 and 17, he says to God, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. He's saying, if the blood of animals could fix this between us, I'd open up a slaughterhouse. But I know you better than that. He says, You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. You see, David knew it wasn't a sacrifice God wanted. It wasn't his punishment. It was his remorse, which came from a longing to be restored to God. It's David's love for God that makes his heart broken and contrite over his sin because his sin has broken trust with God. That's what breaks David's heart. And that's the heart that God wants, one that longs for him. God doesn't want your pain He doesn't want your punishment. He wants your life and he wants your restoration to him. So how do people get so far off course with their ideas about what kind of sacrifice God wants? Well, it starts with the wrong picture of God. Thinking that what God wants is for us to punish ourselves for our wrongdoing, for our failings, in order to somehow make up for them. That somehow that's how things are made right if we punish ourselves. That's the kind of thinking that leads to this kind of sin. And it's so dangerous because in a twisted kind of way, it sounds right to us. I messed this up. I should suffer for it. That's fair. That's the way it's made right. But the problem with that is it actually locks us into pride. I'm going to fix this on my own power. And then it locks us into shame when we realize eventually that our self-punishment doesn't actually make anything better, which leads to feelings of failure and more shame and keeps us from turning to God, who alone can set us free from that terrible cycle. You see, Satan has used those tools of fear and shame against people since the fall in the Garden of Eden. It's why Adam and Eve hid from God. And whether or not people today use the word sin to describe the brokenness they feel, the I am not enoughness they feel. The enemy of our soul still will use it as a weapon to try and separate us from the restoring power of God's love. Because shame and fear eventually lead to acting out in destructive or self-destructive ways. And I think our current culture has only increased those haunting feelings that all you're doing is not going to be good enough no matter how hard you try, because now it's backed up with megapixels and posts and tweets and a world of instant comparisons to everyone on the planet at every given moment. And that fear that I haven't done enough, that I am not enough, still comes out in desperate and irrational ways. And maybe in our society it doesn't come out through child sacrifice anymore, thank the Lord, but shame, guilt, and fear still come out in other forms. Now it's seen in cutting, eating disorders, destructive self-talk, destructive behaviors, falling into drinking or drugs or other addictions that numb the pain. 
What do we do with the constant nagging feeling that I'm not enough? Where can we live between the impossible standard of the perfect and the despair of knowing that we're broken? What's ever going to be enough? What does God want from me? It's for that kind of heart that Micah 6 was written. It reads, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? See, Micah keeps upping the cost. A thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil, my firstborn child. Is any sacrifice enough? What do you want from me, God? And here's the answer in verse 8. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, I think this near-sacrifice story of Abraham and Isaac, as horrible as it may seem to us, is just an example of God meeting us where our minds already are a way of thinking that we fall into so often, thinking that what God wants is for us to suffer punishment for our failings. And so God enters into that story that we already have going on into our minds, and he tells us, fine, go up on the mountain, bring the wood and the sacrificial fire. But then once we're there, before our God, he changes the ending. He stops your sacrificial hand, and he says, stop, beloved. Don't you know who I am? I don't want your death. I want your life. I want your heart. I want your company. I want you. That's what the Lord of love answers. And hearing humanity's desperate questions that lead to those atrocities, how do I make things right? What can I do? What can I ever give that will be enough? God answers with the good news, nothing. Nothing you can ever do will ever be enough. That's good news? Yes. Because only Jesus is enough. Only God's sacrifice for you is enough to make things right between you and God. And on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided for you. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, his prophetic words were, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you and I face the death sentence of our sin and our brokenness, God sent Jesus to take into himself the sin and death that separates us from God. The only Son of God willingly entered into this world to take your place, to take your sin and death so that you can be freed to live. He's the ultimate replacement lamb, God's only Son. What God would not ask from us, he did for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Where can we live between the impossible standard of the perfect and the despair of being broken? We live as the ransomed, the redeemed by God's own love. And where we are now, what we are now, is not what we shall be. 
God isn't finished with us yet, but no amount of our self-improvement could ever do what Jesus does. This story is fulfilled in Jesus, and in it, you are not the sacrificer, and you are not the sacrificed. You are the ransomed. You're the rescued. You are the one set free. The lamb who takes your place has ransomed you to live. And so believing, what now? What does he want from you, O mortal, when giving up 10,000 rivers of olive oil or your firstborn child mean nothing to God? What does mean something to him? When you love him enough to imitate his heart, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, knowing that he alone is your salvation, knowing only he can, only he has, only he ever will, and there are no more sacrifices required. He is enough. Let Jesus, the Lamb of God, take your sins and scatter them as far from you as the east is from the west. Let God be God, and let you be his. You may know there is no Jewish festival to commemorate the near sacrifice of Isaac. But interestingly enough, there is a Muslim one. September 1st is the Muslim feast day called Eid al-Ha, when many Muslims sacrifice a ram to commemorate when God redeemed the son of Abraham. The Quran doesn't actually say which son it was, but Muslim tradition says, well, it must have been Ishmael. <laughs> so they remember Abraham's obedience and they imitate it by sacrificing an animal themselves. And in Pakistan, nearly 10 million animals are slaughtered on this three-day festival each year to remember Abraham's obedience and God's mercy. So their practice imitates human obedience and sacrifice. We celebrate too, but in a very different way. Our practice, our three-day festival of the sacrifice, is Good Friday when Jesus died on the cross for us, Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose victorious over death for us, that what we celebrate is the sacrifice God gave to be our ransom, our replacement, to move us from a death sentence to the joy of the promise of eternal life with him. We celebrate not our human obedience, but God's amazing faithfulness and grace. And I saw this firsthand in the year 2000 when I was in the country of Benin. The night we were there was the last night of Eid, and the streets around us literally were flowing with the blood from animal sacrifices as we walked through the dark streets toward the Christian church where there was a celebration happening that night. The Christian church in this town was on the top of a hill. And as we were walking through those dark and bloody quiet streets, the light from the church was shining down over the path and the songs of the people's praise were pouring out of the windows, singing praises to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the very last sacrifice required, the one who is their hope, their peace, their joy, their redemption. And the joy of that church was palpable. I can only describe it as a fan club for Jesus going on in that place. People were just jumping up and down with joy and peace and gratitude to Jesus. And I just had to think, what a contrast. What a wholly different picture of who God is. What a wholly different understanding of who we are 
to him. We are not the sacrificial lambs, beloved. We are not the sacrificers. We are the ones that God loved enough to take our place so we can be forever with him. Ephesians 2 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. That's who your God is. He is the God who provides. And so today, beloved, bring your confession to him to redeem. Let him take your sin and make you new. Let him be God and you be his. And seek to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Because this Jesus we are celebrating today in this fan club for Jesus worship is also a fan of your heart. And today he invites you to walk this life free with him. So take your first step into his arms. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you for your obedience, Lord, to pay the price that we could not pay in order to restore us as children of God now and forever. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to imitate you with our lives and our gratitude for your saving grace. Lord, help us to grow in doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with you, letting you lead, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your grace that makes all things new. We pray that this week that your grace would set us free to live in joy with what you have given us, to live in joy the lives that you have called us to live, to pour out your love on this broken world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.